I knew something wasn't, it wasn't wholly right for me. And I think the thing that drives all of this is I just wanted to explore my own creativity. And again, I had that teacher, Dr. Lauerstedt, who was encouraging me and um, kind of almost pleading with me, like to, to heed my own voice. I mean, I remember like from the very beginning, he was like, why are you studying conducting? Like, why aren't you just, why, did, why don't you move to LA right now and, and write your own music and score films and, and just do that? Like, and I remember just thinking, why is this guy telling me this? Like, I want to, I want to be a conductor, you know? Um, but I think I realized over time more and more how, how much my own creativity meant to me. And I projected what my life would look like if I went down the traditional route. And let's say in, in a dream situation, I'm the music director of the Chicago Symphony someday. I didn't see enough space to be creative, to write my own music and to tell my own musical story. That's Steve Hackman talking about what it was like for him to take a leap off the traditional path of becoming a conductor to create something completely and radically different. The result is a feast for the ears that I don't fully know how to describe because it is so unique, but Steve sure does. On this episode of Juilliard, Steve's going to share with us why it's the rejections that make the career and how he was able to get into constant creation mode. And you've got the chance to hear Steve Hackman's music live and in person when he brings Brahms and Radiohead to Austin. That's right. I said Brahms and Radiohead. I'm really excited that you're coming to Austin and you're bringing a show, Steve, that I think appeals to grandma and grandpa and also the kids that are too cool for school. And before we get into it, though, I really want to learn about your background. You are somebody who seems I don't even know how to describe you. You're so creative. Can you kind of begin at the beginning? And what were you thinking you wanted to be when you were a kid? Well, sure. No, thanks for that. I mean, I think one of the most important things to mention is I grew up pretty agnostically when it comes to music. Um, my, you know, neither of my parents were professional musicians and they didn't play music around the house, but my dad had a lot of old LPs and cassettes and, and, and CDs that I sort of discovered. And since I didn't have parents that were pushing me and impo- imposing any sort of kind of judgments on any sort of genres of music and saying, classical is better than this, or you should only listen to rock and roll or, or, or whatever. Um, I discovered it myself and I fell in love with all of it myself. And so my entire musical journey sort of had that as a theme that I loved all sorts of music, um, especially classical and then, you know, contemporary popular music equally. And I sort of discovered them all in my own time. Uh, obviously, I was trained classically once I got to college and, and grad school. But, you know, all the while, sort of in parallel, I was discovering popular music and making my own music and writing my own stuff. So in my professional world, I've tried to just sort of realize that journey through my work and showing that I'm interested in kind of um, crossing over and creating interesting bridges between the two. So it sounds like as a kid, you were pretty sure you wanted to make your money with music. I wouldn't say that. That um, It was in high school that I, I think... Well, I don't, I don't money. I don't think money was a part of it. Um, what I can say, m- the first experience I had musically where I thought I really want to do this is I, I sang in the all-state choir when I was um, a sophomore in high school, and you know all these kids coming together with all this talent and making a, an amazing musical sound, and and that community aspect of of um, music making was something that 
really struck me. And I think that's where I realized I really wanted to be a conductor and I really wanted to make music with people. And so when you said that to your parents, were they like, great, you know, make a living in the arts? Or were they like, that's a good idea, but maybe you should also like study accounting or something a little more stable on the side? No, I was really lucky. I mean, my parents were so supportive uh, of both my sister and my pursuit to music. My sister is a, um, a trained opera singer and she teaches voice. And <laughs> I think my parents, when I was in high school, listen, anything, anything that kept me out of trouble, I think was, was good. So, um, you know, when I, was, when I was falling in love with music, I think they knew um, there, that I had that calling. And when I was admitted to Curtis was when it became real for them. And they thought, oh, wow, maybe he really can do this because, you know, Curtis is at such a high level and it was, you know, it was tuition free. It's full scholarship for all the students. And it's a really, you know, sort of one of the most respected music conservatories in the world. So I think that was the moment where they said, oh, this might work. <laughs> yeah. And that's when they knew you were serious and that it, like you had a little something extra going on that everybody else was going to see, too. Yeah, I think, you know, I, I fell hard for classical music in my undergrad in, in those those formative years in elementary school and high school. I loved music, but I wasn't being trained at a high pr- Uh, like a highly professional classical level. I just was, um, gosh, I just was learning a lot about it and I was just loving doing it. And um, then in my undergrad years, I I just was lucky. I got an amazing uh, piano instructor who really opened my world up to classical music and sent me to Aspen those summers. And so I just think up until that point, my parents knew I was serious about it, but they probably wondered like, what does it take to get into the game? You know, Mm -hmm. because we just didn't know. We didn't know that world. Right, right. So what was it like when you got to Curtis? Um, it was at the same time, exhilarating and, uh, terrifying because, you know, I'll, I'll talk to the exhilaration first. The, the, the first orchestra rehearsal was, I think a couple of days after I arrived in Philly and I was a conducting student there. So I was going to be conducting these students that I was watching play with my teacher. The first reading they did was Brahms the second symphony. And I just said, I had tears in my eyes instantly. I mean, to think you know, I get, get emotional thinking about it now. I mean, going from the University of Illinois, where I studied my undergrad, and then leveling up to the top, to Curtis, and hearing the symphony orchestra play this music, I just was like, I felt like the luckiest person in the world, and, and I felt like I was on top of the world, and anything was possible. Uh, but then weekly conducting lessons with my teacher, where, you know, he was an old-school, tough-love um, kind of whiplash style teacher. Um, so, and I was this punky kid from the Midwest that thought I knew a lot more than I knew. And, uh, you know, he just, he just beat me down every week. Um, but he toughened me up and I learned what I needed to learn. Uh, so Curtis was amazing and changed my life. Yeah. I've heard that actually from different people, vocalists and, and different conservatories, that there is like a real, um, I don't know exactly how to describe it, but it may be almost kind of a breaking down of you before they lift you back up. But to me, it seems, and of course, not had any of this experience, but it seems like, you know, creatively or artists, you want to like really sort of buoy them up and boost them. But there is an incredible um, strength that seems to come from this sort of method that that I think at least or this edge that I think a lot of conservatories have in common where students get there and it's like, whoa. Yeah. yeah I mean, you, you're very right. I think there is that breaking down process to, to build people out, back up. There is that sort of trying to toughen 
the students up in order to pre- prepare them for the real world. There is that kind of gut check of like, if you really want this, it's going to be this difficult. Now, the the problem is you you then you kind of indoctrinate all your students into this culture, um, and psychologically, it imposes this sort of um, this thought of like, I, I have to do this and this is the path and I can't stray from this path. I've worked from this, you know, I suffered for this. And that makes it difficult to then stray from that path or even think creatively about, well, hold on a second. Is this really what I want? Or might, might there be a different way to do this? And any, anyone who's been trained at that level goes through this. And I, I talk with my peers and colleagues about this all the time. And this has been one of my, you know, really another uh, really important part of my journey, the sort of unwinding of, um, <laughs> of all those, that, that, that psychological, I don't, I don't know, that, that fixation that I had. Now, I was lucky at Curtis because while I was being trained in that way from my conducting teacher, my musical mentor, who I am close to, uh, close with to this day, uh, Ford Lauerstadt was teaching me in, uh, instructing me in composition and counterpoint, and he was encouraging my creative side. So I had this incredible duality where I was learning sort of the tradition on one side, but then on the other side, I had someone saying, do you, and no matter what, keep doing you like, don't, um, don't lose that part of yourself. And if I wouldn't have had that, none of this would be possible. Wow. I'm just thinking how huge that is because I think a lot of students in general, whatever field they're in, there is that pressure to be what somebody expects them to be in order to succeed. So that was a tremendous gift, I think, that you received. And then and then like you took it upon yourself and you're like, okay, yeah, like I can be me and I'm right to be me, which has got to be a light bulb moment. Oh, absolutely. I mean, and by the way, it's not just, it's just, it's not just the expectation of your teachers. I mean, when you're at a level, when you're at the quote unquote, like Olympic level in classical music or any, in anything, it's not just your teachers, your coaches, it's your peers, it's your family. It's like, Hey, I worked all my life to get here and you've all sacrificed to get me here in some way. Um, and I am going to make good on, you know, that promise. So that's another of the, one of the kind of, when I talk about this unwinding, it's like releasing yourself from that pressure and those expectations is, is, is huge. And I've had to confront that many steps uh, at many points along this journey. And I've had some in the beginning, like when I, when I first sort of left the classical music world after graduating from Curtis and after conducting orchestras and seeing, I need to do something different. Like there has to be a way to be more unique and be more authentic to who I am. Um, you know, there was some, I had some difficult conversations with my parents where I said, I, I want to do it differently. And, you know, they, my, my dad was saying, can't you, you know, can't you write songs and produce albums and at night and just like, (laughs) go take this job. But I I just knew I wanted something different. Yeah. Wow. So that was bold to to really stick with it did you have doubt within yourself like having those conversations like oh man maybe dad's right not at that time i mean i think i was young enough still to be um you know <laughs> foolish enough and uh, i was i was foolish enough to think i could you know i could do it and and um 
I was resolute. I mean, I think we all just think we can do anything when, when that age. Um, as time went on, there were many points along the journey where I thought, I, I, I don't think I ever doubted that it was the right decision, but um, it was really hard for a long time. And there were many moments where I was just very acutely aware that this was the path of greatest resistance. Mm. So was it tough when you came out of Curtis? Well, it wasn't right away because when I came out of Curtis, I was just doing what was expected. And um, of course, that was tough in its own way. But, you know, you graduated from Curtis. I I was admitted to Aspen for the Conducting Academy, and I I was sort of on the way. I mean, I I don't want to make it seem like all of a sudden I was whisked onto, you know, some sort of international concert tour with the Berlin Philharmonic. But, you know, if I I just would have stayed on that path um, with the same dedication that I'd had throughout know, throughout my training, um, it would have worked out and it would have worked out very quickly to be, um, you know, a a conductor of a, of a great orchestra. But, and by the way, if if that would have happened maybe a a little faster, I'm many of this wouldn't have happened either. You know, Mm -hmm. if I would have been whisked away right away, like, so I often, when I, when I talk about this, when I talk to, um, students, I often say it's the, it's the rejections that really make the career because, I had my fair share of rejections in, in the kind of traditional world, but that also makes you think, and it makes you question like, all right, so what is this telling me or what, what should I learn from this? So, um, it was about a year out of school, um, that I decided to go a different direction. And interestingly, and, you know, I think this, we can all relate to this. Like as soon as I made that decision, a bunch of offers kind of came in and that was the real gut check where it was like, okay, like, are we really going to turn this down? Like, in order to go this, this different direction. Oh, wow. It's like the universe testing you. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. Oh yeah, and that was, when, that was when the conversation, you know, the, the tough conversation with my parents came. Um, so, yeah. Yeah, so you had to really, you just had to really believe in yourself and trust yourself. Well, I just knew, I knew something wasn't, it wasn't, it wasn't wholly right for me. and. I think the thing that drives all of this is I just wanted to explore my own creativity. And again, I had that teacher, Dr. Lauerstedt, who was encouraging me and um, kind of almost pleading with me, like to, to heed my own voice. And I projected what my life would look like if I went down the traditional route. And let's say in, in a dream situation, I'm the music director of the Chicago Symphony someday. I didn't see enough space to be creative, to write my own music and to tell my own musical story. Um, as great of a job as that would have been. Um, and with, with all the influence that would come with being a great music director at an orchestra, you know, you can affect change. You, there are people doing that in a very, very creative way, but I needed a lot more space for my own creativity. So I just knew it. You knew it. Like you felt it in your body. Definitely. Definitely. And I, and I had, I, I just had things to say with my own music. Um, and it was a divergence because I, you know, I studied conducting. I was supposed to be some conductor, you know, but again, all the while this other, my, my mentor was saying, you're, I mean, I remember like from the very beginning, he was like, why are you studying conducting? Like, why aren't you just, why didn't, why don't you move to LA right now and, and write your own music and score films and, and just do that? Like, and I remember just thinking, why is this guy telling me this? Like, I want to, I want to be a conductor, you know? Um, 
but I think I realized over time more and more how, how much my own creativity meant to me. Wow. Isn't that interesting? Oh, I love that aspect of your journey. Okay. So once you gave yourself the, the permission and the freedom to be creative and innovative, what was the first project that, that bubbled up for you? It was, yeah, I was writing a lot of my own music, producing albums, playing in clubs, playing in bands, you know, just kind of exploring every area of popular music that I could get into. Um, but the important thing here is that I still remained co- connected to the classical world in that there was a group called Time for Three that I had gone to Curtis with. They were uh, three brilliant kind of multi-genre players. Um, and they, they, I was arranging music for them. I was writing for them. I was music directing for them. And I was doing more and more with them over time. I was, though I wasn't conducting orchestras, I was still kind of working with them and it kept me connected. And in those years, there was three years that I was kind of away from the conducting world. Um, I really missed it. Um, I realized quickly how much that music meant to me. And so time for three, that group, that, that three person ensemble, they were invited to the Indianapolis Symphony to be artists in residence. And the Indianapolis Symphony said to them, hey, we've got this series with the orchestra where we're trying to engage with millennials. Would you want to sort of take over this series? And they said, sure, but we want Steve to come in and write the music and conduct the orchestra. So that was my reentry back into the classical world. But it was an appropriate one. And, and it was a fortuitous one because I, I, we were being asked to do something different. And so I was then able to explore, okay, well, you want to do it differently. How would you do it? They, they were asking us to do it and giving us a blank slate. And so that's where it all started with the whole Brahms radio and all that, the fusion work. Wow. That was, that was sort of the birth of it. It was. And, and it, it came first through my arrangement for that trio and we were pushing each other and they were always pushing me to like go deeper and, and write like, make these arrangements of, of popular songs more unexpected and insert classical music. And I was pushing them, you know, from the, uh, as far as their own um, performance and their creativity. And, and we just, it was a time of kind of an eruption of creativity. And then we were able to then, or, or I started to then apply all those principles to the, the greater orchestra and write for the whole orchestra. Wow. How long did that take? Well, it happened right away because, you know, I remember my first meeting with them was something in like in November and our first concert was in January. So that was another thing about that period. Um, it was, we were, I was just in, in constant creation mode because it was four concerts throughout the year and I was writing all the music for all the performances. And so um, it was a total crash course in orchestration and composition and writing. And, and, and it was just, um, yeah, it was a great period of evolution, um, of concentrated evolution. Wow. To me, that sounds really quick. And it, and it sort of reminds me of things I've read about Mozart and Beethoven, like that Mozart wrote music fully formed out of his head, just jotted it down. And, we're, and Beethoven was like a massive rewriter. But I think it's sort of interesting, like you hit that vein of creativity and it seems like a lot of stuff just came together kind of all at once. That's true. And, and you know what they say about like sort of luck and opportunity and preparation. Um, you know, I, I was prepared for it and mm-hmm. it, it, it was the opportunity. And listen, it was, a um, <laughs> we made a ton of mistakes and we learned from those mistakes and it was, 
not smooth sailing with the orchestra because the orchestra was, you know, they were just very alarmed at what we were doing conceptually. Um, but it was selling, it was selling tickets and it was engaging and, it, and we created kind of a, um, we had, we created such a splash and such buzz in the community and developed a loyal following very quickly. So, um, though the orchestra, um, may have been apprehensive of the creative direction, they couldn't deny the, the results. And so that's the only reason we, we were able to keep doing it. I can imagine. I'm just trying to, I'm just picturing that when you say the orchestra was alarmed, I'm just like picturing all these faces looking at you as you're talking about this idea and they're trying to process it. That had to be a challenge. It was a great challenge and uh, made even more challenging because we didn't talk about it. Oh, so all that happened was I would just show up and, and put music in front of them that had, you know, Beethoven being combined with Coldplay and, you know, synthesizers being added in with, you know, this classical repertoire and, and they just, they didn't know what was going on. They, they, they had not been properly briefed on it and we had not had the proper dialogue. Now, granted, if we had, if we, had we had that dialogue, they might have <laughs> just vetoed the whole thing and it maybe wouldn't have happened mm -hmm. because this is, you know, we're talking about 10 years ago and the orchestra world has changed over these 10 years, especially in the last couple of years as, as, you know, engaging with audiences may have been made so much more difficult post COVID. Um, but yeah, it was hard. It was hard. We were, we were, um, I was punched in the mouth a lot of times. Maybe that was really the way to digest it. Like the confusion and sort of all at once in order to make it happen. But you're right. Cause a lot of times with innovative ideas like that, people, especially if they don't get it are like, yeah, that's definitely not going to work. I'm going to, I'm going to take a hard pass on that. So, you know, it sounds like, in a way, even though it was tough, it maybe was the only way to get it done. It was the only way. Yeah. Yeah. And, 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 and I, I had um, positions with um, the Indianapolis Symphony, the Pittsburgh Symphony, the Colorado Music Festival, and all of those opportunities were born out of some sort of change in leadership or some sort of kind of gap where, um, how to say this, it, it was almost like slipping through the cracks, you know, and, and those opportunities would not have existed if, if those institutions would have kind of been operating in more of a um, kind of efficient, like communicative way. Mm -hmm. And, and it's, it's not, it's not, I'm not saying anything like disparaging towards those institutions, but everyone, every institution goes through some sort of change. And it was periods of change where it was like these in between, you know, months where there's a, there was no CEO or there was no, no one in this position. And, and somehow <clears throat> I was able to somehow someone in those organizations believed in it enough that they were able to push it through. Um, but, but the, the somewhat, let's say the, 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 the kind of somewhat unsteady state at that exact point in time allowed it to be pushed through. Does that make sense? It does. It does. Absolutely. So how do you choose how you're going to um, sort of marry these different artists? So I know you've done some stuff with Beethoven and Coldplay. What you're bringing to Austin is Brahms and Radiohead. I'm sort of curious to know the behind the scenes, like how are you, how are you hearing the fusion is going to work? before you put it together? Or is it all just, you know, hey, let's try this? So sometimes 
I would say on the whole, these pairings are chosen for reasons that are bigger than just the musical similarities. In the case of Brahms Radiohead, Brahms Radiohead would be one exception. Um, I heard similar themes. I heard, you know, key centers, a, a general key center that they, they shared. Certainly a, a kind of sympathetic, you know, feeling in general in the music. So that's the reason why I chose those and, and um, went, went forward with that one. But then as these fusion works has, have progressed, I've chosen pairings for reasons that are, again, bigger than just the music, you know, more thematic reasons, mm-hmm. um, like what, what the composers were, were speaking to, what, what the more general kind of theme and feeling was of the music. Because, I don't know, that, that made it more interesting and, and more, I think it, it, it's important to, to choose them for, the, for those bigger reasons and not just the musical reasons, basically. Yeah. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense to me. So, okay, Brahms and Radiohead is coming to Austin April 6th, which is a Thursday, at Moody Amphitheater. And I've heard just a little bit online, which, you know, it's like a, a feast for the ears doesn't really describe it. Like, it's the the way that this music's put together is is so powerful, I don't really know how to how to talk about it. And so I want you to try to explain to people what can they expect to hear with Brahms and Radiohead um, on April 6th? Well, sure. It's it's Radiohead's OK Computer filtered through the lens of Brahms. So we're using we're using the symphony orchestra that Brahms uses for his first symphony. And we're adding to it the three vocalists. It, it, it stays in that classical sound world. It's almost like it's the piece that had Brahms been able to hear OK Computer while he was writing the first symphony, then, you know, it, it's the version, it's an alternate version that maybe he would have created, you know, because he wanted to include this album that he loves. Um, so it's, yeah, we stay in Brahms' sound world. And it's a reimagination and a sort of reinvention of the Radiohead through that lens of Brahms and taking advantage of that those incredible and intricate harmonies and counter melodies and melodies and um, and relying more on the structure of the Brahms symphony and having all these insert points where we deviate from the Brahms into this hybrid world of Brahms and Radiohead. That's a very good description. That's vivid. Okay, good. <laughs> it's, it's, it's like vivid. And at the same time, I'm thinking like, how is that even possible? And yet it is. Yeah. <laughs> well, <laughs> it's um, wild. I, I think so. Uh, it is wild. It's, it's definitely wild. Um, but the music is so rich, and the Brahms and Radiohead share this, at least these two specific pieces, OK Computer and the First Symphony. They share this sort of dark, brooding, anxious feeling. And, you know, that, then you, when you marry them together, I think that feeling is compounded. Um, and it's, it's quite an emotional and epic experience. Yes. Emotional and epic experience. That is a good description because even just listening to the little bit I was able to online, I was like, oh, this is affecting me in my central column in a very different way, you know, and and live music of any kind and live orchestra music, you know, it's so evocative um, in many different ways. But what you've done here, Steve, with this fusion is really, it, I feel like it's just extraordinary. And I'm so excited 
for um, people here in our Austin community to come and hear this and, and experience this? Well, I, I appreciate that so much. And, and I think, <clears throat> excuse me, it's for, for anyone that's been trained in classical music and that has made a career out of classical music, you know, advocacy for our, our art form is part and parcel and um, is ingrained in what we do, or, or it should be, you know, that responsibility to try to keep our art form alive. And it's such a, um, a privilege to introduce the Austin Symphony and the Brahms First Symphony to this audience that maybe has never been to hear the Austin Symphony or maybe has never heard the works of Brahms. And, and from, my, from the very beginning with me at the Indianapolis Symphony and being in residence for Time for Three, we treated these opportunities with great um, care and we didn't take them for granted. Um, but we always knew that there are so many listeners out there that just haven't yet had the access to classical music or the right entry point to classical music. And that's what's great about this program. You know, I mean, Radiohead listeners are already intellectually curious, open-minded people, I find. And uh, from the beginning, I, I've known that if I can just get them as a captive audience, you know, there is classical music that I know I could turn them on to. And so it, this is a great uh, opportunity to do that. Yes. So Thursday, April 6th at Moody Amphitheater, it's Brahms and Radiohead. You can get your tickets at austinsymphony.org. And I do love that idea, Steve, of making it more accessible because it's it's a discovery that everyone ought to be able to have and an influential one, I think, because if you never have the opportunity, you don't know what it can awaken inside of you. And so I think that is in particular really, really important. Well, that's well put. I completely agree, of course. And I know that, you know, I, I can't wait to play in Austin. I mean, we well know what an amazing kind of cultural and artistic and music city that is. And uh, we've been waiting for years to come there. Um, and I think it's going to be an extraordinary night. Oh, that is so exciting. I I am delighted to hear that. I think this evening is just going to be just so lush. And my last question for you is, is there anything else that you want people to know, you know, either about this experience or about uh, the people that you work with, or is there anything that we, that we maybe have missed? Well, I think you touched upon it with the people that I'm working with. I mean, I, I'm coming with me are three vocal soloists that are just um, extraordinary in their own right. They are, um, they're artists, songwriter, producer, arranger types themselves. Um, and, you know, we got Jamal Moore, um, coming from LA, uh, Aaron Bentledge from LA and, and then Rich Saunders coming from Brooklyn. And you, the audience is just in for such a treat because not only what they do with Brahms Radiohead, but then just to discover these three artists and then see all the things they're doing and follow them on Instagram. I mean, it's, it's just an incredible convergence of talent when you think about the soloists, the orchestra, the Radiohead, the Brahms, you know, we're, it's, it's all going to come together in a beautiful way. And, um, you know, if not for those vocal soloists, there's no way to do this music. You know, they're the, I would say they're the front lines of communication because they're up there looking at the audience the whole time with the microphones. I mean, my back is unfortunately to the audience because I'm doing my thing with the orchestra, but, um, yeah, yeah. The audience is in for a treat with those three vocalists. Yes. Um, I do actually have one more question for you. Do you consider yourself at heart a conductor? Because you do so much, right? You play the piano, you sing. Of course, we touched on the fact that you write songs and arrange songs. 
Uh, do you, how do you think of yourself, Steve? I definitely, as a composer, as, as a musical creator, you know, um, I'm, I'm the most influenced by kind of um, auteurs, whether it's a, you know, a Wes Anderson or a Paul Thomas Anderson or a Stevie Wonder, or, you know, these, these um, or a, you know, or a Beethoven or a Wagner or a, you know, the a David Byrne, you know, a David Bowie, like, I mean, the, the list just kind of goes on, but I'm inspired and I take a great influence from those artists who have had a creative vision and um, who have done whatever it takes and have learned whatever technique was necessary in order to um, realize that creative vision. So conducting is just a, that, of course, I studied it. And that's a part of this, this whole unwinding process I was talking about, like kind of reorienting myself as being around being a musical creator, not just a conductor. Um, so, yeah, that's definitely composer and creator. Very cool. And it, it makes me excited also for your future and what else you're going to create. You mentioned David Byrne. And I just think like, wow, I remember the first time I heard um, the album Stop Making Sense. And I look at David Byrne today and I'm just like, I'm constantly blown away at what he does. I find him mesmerizing. And talk about somebody that like followed his own creative vision. So thank God you did the same thing. Well, no, I appreciate that. And I'm, I'm still... I'm always trying to do it more and more and get more to the heart of what I'm trying to say. Yeah. So this is a journey. It is a journey. And I love this journey for you. And I'm looking forward to April 6th and Brahms and Radiohead. And just thank you so much, Steve, for spending some time with me and sharing more of yourself today. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Thanks for a terrific conversation. If you're ready to see Steve Hackman's Brahms and Radiohead, you can do that live Thursday, April 6th at Moody Amphitheater. Head over to austinsymphony.org to buy tickets. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Juilliard's. And if you liked it, please subscribe or follow depending on your platform. And that way you'll never miss an episode. If you want to hear more from Juliet, listen to Magic 95.5 weekday afternoons. She's on the air from noon to seven, keeping you company while you're at work or on that all too lengthy drive home.